I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. David Grube. He's a physician, a teacher, and an ambassador for the medical aid in dying, better known as Death with Dignity. Today, we learn more about this controversial subject. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. It's amazing how people are paralyzed by fear when it comes to you know, this whole medical aid and dying, physician-assisted suicide, death with dignity. What's the best kind of appropriate way to to name this movement? Well, I think probably the best language to use it would be end-of-life options. Uh, in Oregon, our law is called death with dignity, and that's probably unfortunate because dignity um, is defined by the person who's dying, and any uh, death that they could say would be dignified for them is. For example, in an ICU with all the treatments, if that's that might be dignified for a person. So, um, death with dignity has some limitations. Of course, um, suicide is a is a word that has been used historically, and it's not a good word. Um, and, in, and in fact, if you look at the law in any of the states where medical aid in dying has been authorized, um, it is part of the statute is that the word suicide may, may not be used. So suicide is a totally different thing, and we could talk about that more if you would like, but I think the best language would be end-of-life options or medical aid in dying. I like that. I like that a lot. I'm 45 years old, and I don't want anyone to tell me how to die, and I believe that I want options. I live in a state that this is not an option for me right now, but I do feel that it will be one day. Talk to me a little bit about how you got involved with this. I practiced in a small town in Oregon from 1977 until 2012 when I retired. The law was passed in Oregon in 1997. In 1999, a first patient came to me who was dying and requested that um, we go through the process. So I had to kind of examine um, what I believed and what I thought was important. Well, by that time, I'd been a, a practicing family physician for a quarter of a century. And I had recognized that death uh, is not the enemy uh, that we all are going to die, but the enemy really is suffering. And one of my patients, uh, a number of years before that, um, had taken his life with a shotgun, and I unfortunately had been the person who had found him. He was in hospice. He was getting excellent medical care, but he wasn't. His suffering wasn't being controlled. And I told myself even years before 1997 that I would never let um, this happen again to any of my patients. So over the years from 1999 until 2012, approximately 30 patients uh, went through the process um, in, under my care. About half of them I was the attending physician and half of them I was the consulting physician. Um, and uh, it then from that point on, after I retired, uh, a couple of them came back to me who were really activists, a couple of their widows, and, and asked me to be to begin to give presentations um, about the value of this choice. And so I began that, and 
one thing led to another, and here I am. I think that a lot of people are misunderstanding this movement. This is not an easy process. There are strict guidelines that are in place. And can you help us better understand what those guidelines are? The Oregon Act, which passes, I mentioned to you 20 years ago, um, is really the model act. It, it was carefully discussed and thoroughly researched and and. It was passed, um, as I said, 20 years ago and has not needed to be changed one word. Um, and, and so the other states have modeled their acts on Oregon's. And so essentially, this acts are similar in every state. The authorization requires five components, really. Uh, residency requirement, a, a, being an adult, having a terminal illness, that means less than six months to live. Um, capability, mental capability, able to understand informed consent, um, and volition. That means no one can force you to do this. This is an option that you choose, and that's why, as you mentioned, um, there, uh, opponents really um, have the sense that it's going to be forced on people, and that's, that's, not, that's not possible. And then if, it's, if a, the process uh, takes two physicians an attending physician and a consulting physician, and if there's concerns about mental capability, a third physician, a psychiatric physician. It requires a period of time of waiting, of thoughtful waiting and consideration and counsel. Uh, each of these individuals has to be counseled about their choices and has to understand their choices. Um, and then if the medication is prescribed, another waiting period has to uh, uh, be held before the medicine can even be picked up. So that whole process takes weeks. And then finally, it's a self-administered choice. And so, as you know, I'm sure, Kimberly, um, fully a third of people who go through the whole process and end up having the medication don't ever take it. Uh, and that's why the process itself is palliative, just, just the talking about it. And it's also about having some sort of control over something you don't have any control over. It's a way for individuals who are who are dying to feel like they have some choices still. Well, that's a very important point. And, and we, this gets to the concept of patient autonomy, which means uh, that you do have the right to choose to have your appendix out or not, whether the doctor agrees with you or not, or to, um, to make any take any medical uh, choice. So that is the number one reason that people in Oregon and Washington, um, and probably will be in California too, consider this is patient autonomy. It's not about pain. Um, it is about loss of dignity. It's about anhedonia, which means total loss of any pleasure in life. That's the reason people choose this. It's, it's not about pain or, uh, or things that other people might think. It's about really about choice. And you're right, in the dying process, um, so often uh, there aren't any choices anymore. Um, and so if a person can plan this, it does give them a sense um, that the end of their story will be the, the last chapter that they want. Why do you think so many individuals tend to speak against this movement? Is it because of lack of knowledge or information? Or, I mean, what is your thoughts on that? Well, sure, it is a lack of knowledge or, or information. Um, if you look at the arguments in opposition to medical aid in dying, really there is one valid argument, uh, only one, and that is a religious belief that life is sacred and no life should be ended prematurely. I honor that, and I think that that's true for individuals of certain faith traditions. However, um, they, in my opinion, should not um, 
make their uh, faith tradition uh, the, the, the choice for other people. So all, all the other arguments that people try to bring up, whether it's that the disadvantaged will be abused or that there's a slippery slope or that it's a, a erosion of the doctor-patient relationship, those are all folly. And we know that they uh, are not correct because of our 20 years of experience in Oregon and now five years in Washington and Vermont and California. So um, I think most people uh, who argue against it are coming from a faith tradition. And if that's not what they believe in, I totally agree with them and they should not think about this. Um, probably another component of this besides lack of knowledge and fear is just our inability to comfortably talk about death. We don't do that in our society. And so it's, I think people get nervous uh, and and then they, they don't really research this because they are nervous and don't want to think about their own mortality. Oh, I totally agree. And I think we're making some small movements and we're talking about death and dying a little bit more than we had when I first started working with individuals facing limited life within hospice care. But we we are a long way away from where I feel we should be. It's about normalizing this conversation. And for some reason, I just feel like even my friends, they feel like, well, death's an option. Um, well, I'm like, it's a destination. We're all headed there. And how do we have conversations, real and raw conversations that could could better manage our care? You know, even if, hey, I hope I live another 30 years, but I could die tomorrow. I mean, life is fragile and you just never know. Um, so what are the reasons that so many individuals that I've talked to recently, they are for this movement? And when you hear people talk about, yes, I, I want medical aid in dying to come to my state, have they gone through something that they've seen that someone was suffering? And why do you think people are for this movement? The population is aging um, and the technology is improving. And so if you read Atul Gawande's wonderful book, Being Mortal, he outlines the, those that a combination of things resulting in um, more and more complexity of an end-of-life care, more and more choices, and yet more and more suffering. So as we live longer and we're able to manage the little things that happen to us, ultimately, though, we're left with situations and conditions um, which have never been uh, um, experienced before uh, as a human uh, species. These are our mothers, these are our fathers, our sisters, and our brothers. And yes, uh, we're witnessing, witnessing this, and we're beginning to question um, what, what are we doing with uh, all the medical care, unwanted medical care, uh, at the end of life. So you're right, it's a movement that has, is taking baby steps, but it's changing a lot. I've practiced medicine for, I hate to say, 40 years, and it's way, way different now uh, than it was uh, even 10 years ago, with good books like uh, Atul Gawande's book, with movies like How to Die in Oregon, with the death cafes that are being held with the 30 different states now that have legislation pending in this regard, uh, there's quite a bit of change. Working with a popular case that made national news, Brittany Maynard, 
who moved from one state to Oregon to um, have this option at end of life. How do you see hospice and palliative care, you know, playing a role? Because some of my coworkers, when I was talking about um, just openly about what do you think about this young 29 year old moving from one state to another to, to have an option like this, and they were really like, well, palliative and hospice can do some of this. And I was like, but it's about choice, isn't it? And so even my hospice colleagues were projecting hospice and palliative care onto individuals where she could be comfortable and under these other sorts of uh, options. And I go back to, I don't want anyone to tell me how to die. I want it to be my choice. How do you see hospice and palliative care playing a role within this medical aid for dying? That's a great question. And I think um, I see it as the ultimate answer. Um, uh, I've been involved in hospice. Uh, I'm currently on the board of a hospice since 1980. So that's a long, long time. Um, and there has been a, a huge change uh, in hospice um, improvement and care. And I also personally believe that anybody who's facing end-of-life situations ought to be enrolled in hospice, but that's not contradictory or a, po- or a conflict with medical aid in dying. Historically, that hospices, because of their mantra that they would neither prolong uh, nor hasten death, sort of avoided getting involved. But now, because this is patient-driven and patient-centered, they're needing to get involved. And so you're seeing organizations like the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine passing resolutions say that saying that they are not no longer opposed to medical aid and dying. You're seeing the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization changing its philosophy. You're seeing the American Medical Association's Ethics and Legal Affairs uh, Commission revisiting this. I see... Uh, really this uh, hospice and medical aid in dying as being united. Um, and the words that we are using now are engaged neutrality, which means that the hospice does not promote medical aid in dying. But if an individual chooses that option at the end of their life, they do not abandon the patient. They continue to support the patient and be present and for and with the patient. We're seeing that happening now. Uh, I just got back from California they have 61 hospices now are involved in engaged neutrality in, in California. Um, certainly in Oregon, we have many, many uh, hospices uh, in, with engaged neutrality. And the Oregon Hospice Association is neutral and not opposed to medical aid in dying. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. I'm living in a state that we don't have that option at end of life, but I'm telling my hospice and my local hospice to say, you're going to have to take a position on this. When I watched How to Die in Oregon, there was a gentleman who at the time was having hospice care and he wanted to have, you know, medical aid and dying. And the hospice was not a proponent of that at that time. And he's like, well, then I don't want hospice. And I, so I'm so happy to hear that this is happening in Oregon and in California, that people are are not abandoning these patients because they're choosing this option at end of life. That's positive. Um, that really is. And I'm really happy about that. I think hospices had been reluctant, but they're witnessing now that they can improve their care um, uh, and diminish suffering um, by engaging uh, patients who choose this option and supporting them. Um, there's been a study that's published last year in the Journal of Palliative Medicine, which 
reviewed the different states and their hospice programs and palliative care programs and ultimately came to the conclusion that really the state in the nation that has the best end-of-life care, hospice care, palliative care is Oregon. And their conclusion was that because we have this option of death with dignity in Oregon, um, we talk about everything. We talk about all choices, all options. That conversation in and of itself is palliative. And oftentimes that's all a patient wants is just to talk about it. They don't necessarily want to ever enact, you know, enact the option, but they want to have it as a choice. Yeah, I sure do. I, I really do. And I'm hoping I will see all 50 states in my lifetime adopt this movement. I believe that the baby boomers, as they radicalized the, the birthing process, I believe Generation X is going to hopefully evolve the death and dying process to a more normalized conversation and embrace certain things like, who am I to tell you? how to face your own end of life. And I'm passionate about that. So where are we right now? Compassion and choices um, in their education to individuals that could legalize this act in all 50 states. How's it going? Uh, there's change all around. As I mentioned, the many organizations are changing their policy. Um, Colorado will be voting on this uh, on the 8th of November. And the, the polls, whatever that means, uh, say that it is, will strongly pass. Uh, the state of New Jersey just passed legislation out of their assembly and sent it to their Senate in favor of uh, uh, end-of-life options. The uh, District of Columbia just passed out of committee and sent to their city council, which is essentially their legislature, uh, a resolution supporting medical aid in dying. I'll be traveling later this week to Florida and to Massachusetts, and they're considering legislation. Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota is considering legislation. Um, so I think 30 state legislative bodies right now are actively engaged in conversation and debating uh, end-of-life option acts. That must feel really good to you after, you know, since 1980 being involved with hospice, but with this movement for 20 years to finally, I, I feel like it's getting some traction and you guys are doing some major traveling to support some of these individuals to make this happen in, in some of these different states. When do you think we'll have all 50 states on board? I don't really know. Um, and I just always want to remind myself that it's not about what I th think. It's really about allowing pa patients, individuals, brothers, sisters to have a choice. Um, and so whatever successes we have, it's for them. It's not about what I think or when it'll, I think it'll happen. Um, it is happening, though. And I'm working for it, um, but um, it's not about what what I think. It's really about uh, choice for other people, and and particularly, of course, in this case, dying people. In your in your experience, how many individuals do you know that are relocating to other states like Brittany Maynard to take advantage of this medical aid and dying? Do you have a, a big influx of individuals, and how long do you have to be a resident of the state? Well, the answer is no. There's almost no one who's moving to Oregon or California or Vermont or Washington or Montana, um, because recall these are people who are about to die, and they can't. Uh, Brittany Maynard was a very uh, unusual, eloquent, beautiful woman who um, did really um, galvanize the whole movement, but th her case is almost unheard of, really. I hear people who think about wanting to come to Oregon, but they're too sick to come to Oregon, and then they have to wait when they get here. 
not about residency. Residency is uh, essentially, if you say you're an Oregon resident, you are. But that's the least of the worries. Um, it's finding two doctors. It's finding a place to stay. It's leaving your family, leaving your loved ones, leaving your own home to come to some place that you don't know. It almost never happens. And in my personal experience, I don't know of any case um, that where this has happened, with the exception, perhaps, of Miss Menard. Wow. So what do you hope for the future? I hope that there, that uh, fewer people suffer. Um, the, we're all going to die, so that's uh, a reality that we, we face. But um, I'd like to see uh, less suffering. So that's why I, I praise you for your work in hospice. Um, and that's what hospice and palliative care are all about. They are. Um, and so anything we can do to support and improve hospice and palliative care uh, for, for dying patients, uh, that's what my goal is. I guess my other goal would be that compassion and choice has disappeared um, and that the, all of the work that we're doing is being done by hospices and healthcare systems and doctors and organizations. So that would be, those are my wishes. So if any listener is out there that wants to support this movement, how do they get involved? Well, I think, you know, I guess my prejudice would be for them to contact Compassion and Choices, although there are a number of other organizations in other states, often with the name of End of Life, and then add the state, so End of Life North Carolina, or End of Life Iowa, or, um, but, but Compassion and Choices is who I work for, um, and they have websites, uh, you know, you can just go to CompassionandChoices.org, and, and you can find out what is happening in your state. And then you can um, speak with your hospices in your state to encourage them to um, to move the legislation along. Um, you can have death cafes, uh, which are really wonderful, wholly different other topic, but not. Uh, you can get involved in groups that are supporting um, advanced directives and, and post forms. Uh, so you could go to the website called uh, theconversation.org. Um, which is fr from uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and it's ways to learn how to talk about this topic with your parents, with your sisters and brothers, or with your children. Um, so having the conversation, these are all educational but also action-oriented um, uh, websites. So you've been in the medical field for a very, very long time. Do you see the people like myself who are not clinicians? Do you, do you see individuals starting to embrace and normalize this end-of-life conversation? Um, it, it's involving, it's small moves, but do you see it becoming better in how people are, are looking and talking about death? Yes and no. Um, I think because of many things such as your blog and social media, etc., we're able to express uh, our fears and concerns, and we're able to use language before uh, now that we didn't before. For example, when I began in medicine, the word cancer was almost a swear word. You didn't say it in public because it was kind of embarrassing and scary. So, the, so and there are many, many organizations um, like breast cancer awareness organizations or prostate cancer awareness organizations, which bring out uh, into the into the light, um, all of these uh, end of life worries and concerns. So it's that's really great, and I think I do see people talking about this more. On the other hand, um, still a long ways to go, and especially helping educate 
uh, the individuals coming through medical school. There's just a lot of us in medical school still not preparing our future physicians and nurses more about death and dying. Do you agree with that? Or, or do you see that it's making some movement toward better educating uh, our up-and-coming uh, clinicians? Um, when I went to medical school a million years ago, um, there was no conversation at all. And now every single medical school has some sort of conver- uh, some sort of class on death and dying. And some medical schools are way better than others. Um, I teach in two medical stu- schools now. Um, and the students in both of them have parts of their curriculum devoted to uh, end-of-life concerns with death and dying and, and choices and options. So it's way better than it was. we got a long way to go. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your hard work over the last 30 years. You're, you're changing how people are facing end-of-life. I, I just appreciate you ha- taking the time and helping us better understand this whole medical aid in dying. And I, I think by us continuing to educate people that it's, it's about choices at end-of-life. And that's what this is about. Well, thank you very, very much. I, um, I appreciate that. You know, I, I'd like to just kind of close with one little comment that I often say, and that is that, you know, in, in Oregon, since we passed our death with dignity law, more people have not died, but fewer people have suffered. I love it. That's amazing. I don't think it's going to be in the near future, um, but we are talking. Um, it's going to go up to the General Assembly for the second time. But um, I, I'm looking forward to the day that I see you and your crowd coming to North Carolina. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I wish you well and um, uh, in D.C. and Colorado. Thanks again for the time, and hopefully we'll be in touch soon. I look forward. Maybe one day we'll meet face-to-face. I've never been to North Carolina, so I'd love to come Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.